everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. We're here with just the zoo of us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and we review them by rating them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts. We do a lot of research and try our best to make sure we're presenting information from trustworthy sources. You know what? Right at the top, before we get into our animals, I actually did want to say thank you to people who have been leaving ratings and reviews. Um, They've been tremendously kind, and they make me really happy. It gives me a nice bump of energy when I'm trying to do some uh, research on something and having an aggravating time finding something. Mm, it's like at the end of like a Christmas movie where all the kids, like their belief in Santa makes the sleigh fly again. It's like yeah. that. Everyone believing in Christian <laughs> helps him power through the rest of his notes. <laughs> it does. You had some pretty dense notes this week, didn't you? I do. I'm really excited about it. I feel like when you get like really into, especially like a niche scientific topic, uh, it's so good. <laughs> Let's hope I'm not the only one interested in this one. I'm pretty optimistic that anyone who has chosen to press play on this podcast is probably going to find it interesting. Awesome. So you go first this week, Christian. Yes. Let's hear it. This week, I bring the acorn woodpecker, scientific name Melanerpes formicivorus. This species was submitted by Dave Roberts via email. Thank you, Dave. Yes, thank you so much. I'll be getting my information from the Audubon website, audubon.org, Animal Diversity Web, of course. Love them. And also an article titled Woodpecker Pecking, How Woodpeckers Avoid Brain Injury. (gasps) How yes. do they avoid brain injury? More to come. <laughs> Author is L.J. Gibson, published in the Journal of Zoology back in 2006. So first up, let's talk about what this bird is like. For those unfamiliar, woodpeckers are birds. <laughs> yeah, for <Yes>. sure. <laughs> now, I'm sure there's at least somebody out there that's like never heard of a woodpecker before. I don't know. They're a pretty wide family. Black and white feathering with a little bit of splash of red on its head like many woodpeckers have. Not all of them, though. This is like a classic, iconic woodpecker look. Yeah. I saw it described as clown-faced. Clown-faced? I couldn't find out what that meant. (laughs) That's incredibly rude. (laughs) I've seen other birds described that way. I I don't know what it means. Nobody (laughs) is meaner to birds than ornithologists. Like, I don't know what it is that, like... People who are involved with naming and describing birds have some sort of unbridled rage towards birds. Because you know how, like, birds will be called stuff like the blue-footed booby or, like, the loon. Names for birds are always so mean. Yeah. And I can't tell if I'm just having a sense of deja vu or if we discussed this already. Maybe I've talked about a bird before that was clown-faced. Well, we've talked about the booby. Yeah. So, anyway... Their adult size are they're an average of seventy three grams, which is about two and a half ounces. Oh, so birds are lightweight, of yeah. course, especially flighted birds. True, like this one, and their wingspan is thirteen to fifteen centimeters, or five to six inches. It's not a very big bird. It's not where you can find them, though. Specifically, the acorn woodpecker is west and southwestern U.S., western Mexico, Central America, and Colombia. So we don't have them here in our part of the U.S. No, we don't. We live in Florida. Correct. We have our own woodpeckers, just not the acorn woodpecker. Right. And according to the Audubon website, they're seldom found away from oak trees. And so the most common where several species of oaks occur together, and this ensures against total failure of local acorn crop, as different oaks respond to different conditions. 
Oh. Yeah. So if they have a condition that affects one species of oak, I hope species is the correct word here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, plants have species just like animals yeah. do. So if, if there's a condition that's affecting one kind of oak, then hopefully, you know, the other types of oaks aren't affected in the same way. So they'll still have their food reserves of yeah. acorns. That's smart. Yeah. That's an important argument in favor of biodiversity. Right. So... I guess that's a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> acorn woodpeckers depend on acorns. Are they eating the acorns? Yes, and oh, more. Interesting. Yeah. They belong to the taxonomic family Piscidae. Piscidae? P-I-C-I-D-A-E, uh, which is the woodpeckers and close relatives. So in addition to other woodpeckers, like the red-bellied and pileated woodpeckers we see in our area, this family also contains other related birds like sapsuckers and piculets. Sapsuckers? Yes. That sounds interesting. I'll actually be talking about that a little uh, bit. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I don't think I'm very familiar with sap suckers. It's <laughs> a fun name to say, though. <laughs> so our first category is effectiveness. And this is talking about physical attributes that help them do the things they do. And I'm giving an 8 out of 10. That's pretty good. Yeah, for the acorn woodpecker. So first and foremost, their ability to peck holes. <laughs> we have to talk about yes. this. <laughs> so this is something lots and lots of woodpeckers are known for, where they're you know doing that distinctive pecking into a tree. Typically, you hear of woodpeckers doing this to get at food, like bugs and things that are living inside the tree. Right. This one does not do that. So it's usually pecking holes in tree snags, which is a standing dead tree. I didn't know that word before this. A snag? Yes. Is that, That's just a tree that's dead? That's still standing. Oh, okay. Yes. It has to still be standing. Yes. Like, I guess like as opposed to a log. Yes, that is <laughs> the scientific term. Okay. <laughs> a log. A vertical log. <laughs> so they peck holes in these snags to hoard acorns. So these granary trees, as they're referred to, can be used for generations and can contain up to 50,000 holes in them. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so it's not, they're not just pecking one big hole to put all their acorns no, in. No, it's a hole that fits one acorn. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Surely there must be a more efficient way to do this. <laughs> to have a one-to-one hole-to-acorn ratio. I guess that ensures the acorn's not going anywhere by accident. Like something has to be purposely trying to get it out of that hole. I suppose so. Yeah. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and like I mentioned, unlike most other woodpeckers, it will rarely or never excavate wood to find insects. Okay. It's really all about the acorn. Yes. They do, however, eat insects, but it's usually like cotton flight type of insects. Mm. Uh, they also might be pecking holes to feed on sap. So oh. this is where the term sap sucker comes from. So those birds are, are doing that primarily, but other woodpeckers like this one will also drink or eat sap. I'm not sure which is the more appropriate term for that. Mm, sure. Um, Consume. Sure. Ingest. Sap. <laughs> Lick. <laughs> put in mouth. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you know, they'll, they'll put these holes in the tree so that, you know, sap in a tree can escape and dribble down and then they'll, they'll lick it up. Uh, they'll also use this pecking to excavate nests to lay their eggs in. So these are like big holes. Okay. Yeah. So they have the capacity to make a big yeah, hole, yeah. but choose not to for the purpose of storing the acorn. There's got to be a reason. That just seems like the least efficient way to do I that. Know. I don't know. <laughs> so my next point here is the anatomy that allows it to use its face as a jackhammer, basically. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. So this is where that article comes into play that I mentioned earlier. Because this is a high impact activity. Right. So according to that article, um, they can do this without injuring themselves for three reasons. So first is their small size reduces the stress on the brain for a given acceleration. 
So my high school and a little bit of college level of physics, <laughs> one of the biggest things you learn in physics is force is equal to mass times acceleration. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember this one. Yeah. This is one of the ones <laughs> that, that lasted in my brain. Use the force. So that what that means is for a given acceleration, if the mass is larger, that's a larger force. Right. It's all coming together. Yes. <laughs> and acceleration describes the change in velocity or speed, and velocity describes the change in distance. Go more fast, bigger force. Go less fast. Well, not just go fast, but increasing speed. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Or decreasing. Go faster. <laughs> right. So the second one is the short duration of the impact, which increases the tolerable acceleration. Tolerable acceleration is how fast can they accelerate without injuring themselves. Now, this might seem counterintuitive, right? To say a shorter duration lets them endure more. Uh, so think of it as the brain can take more of a beating if it's for a shorter period of time. I guess that makes sense. So and anything above that tolerance results in brain injury or a concussion. Yeah. So we, we have this measurement in humans, too. So just to understand like the magnitude of time we're talking about here, the typical duration of an acorn woodpecker's head impact is half to one millisecond. So a millisecond, you can fit a thousand milliseconds in a second. Right. So usually we are only talking about milliseconds when we're talking about like computers and things happening at, at that level mm -hmm. like with networks and that sort of thing i was gonna say like i could uh insert some sort of audio signal that would like like a beep for that period of time <laughs> but even if i did that you wouldn't be able to hear it yeah nope <laughs> so the acorn woodpecker's tolerable acceleration for that duration is 4600 to 6000 g's so a g being um you, you you hear this a lot when you talk about astronauts oh yeah sure yeah so like, like a force of gravity. Right. Um, whereas an astronaut will maybe experience around three or four Gs. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's a sense of scale then. Yes. <laughs> but it's all about that duration because that's happening, you know, across minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas this is a fraction of a second. Right. So, but its actual acceleration was measured to be between 634 to 1,525 Gs, so well below that threshold of causing injury to itself. Now, the typical duration of human head impact is 3 to 10.5 milliseconds. Um, the tolerable acceleration for a human across that duration is only 80 to 160 Gs. Okay, so they're doing it much faster, mm -hmm. and also... They have a higher tolerance. They for, have a higher tolerance. Yes. So what this also kind of ties into is this idea of... Controlling deacceleration to avoid injury. So this is the primary purpose of airbags in cars. Oh, okay. Right. Because what it's doing is, you know, instead of going from, you know, 80 miles an hour, whatever your speed you are in a car and hitting a brick wall and pretty much hitting zero instantly, instantly. Yeah. <laughs> it's spreading out that deacceleration because it's basically a big airbag and it's like catching you and, sl and slowing you down across a, a wider period of time. It's a more gradual stop yeah. than a sudden stop. Right. It's still going to hurt, mm -hmm. but not as but much. less. And the third thing that helps them with this is the orientation of their brain within their skull. And it, that increases the area of contact between the brain and the skull. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So rather than all that force being applied to a small area, it, it's spreading it out. The brain is like braced for impact. Right. The brain is like, we're ready to go. <laughs> mm -hmm. And to kind of go along with that, like most woodpeckers, they have a really long tongue that wraps around the back inside of their skull. 
It like cradles <laughs> their like brain. It's so weird. Look up a picture, please. Yeah, it's it absolutely helps. wild. And this species, it seems to be mostly useful for eating sap. Because again, this species isn't trying to dig insects out of wood and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but this would be useful for licking up sap. So the the tongue starts like way, way, way back at like the base of the skull, and it, like, it actually it like goes all the way around up mm-hmm. and pretty much almost to their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I think about that, it makes my head feel tingly. Do you know what I mean? Like thinking about what it must be like for your tongue to be wrapped up inside your head like yeah. that, like a hubba bubba bubble tape. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> <laughs> so that wraps up effectiveness that's pretty good okay they have like they're they're built for a very high impact activity (laughs) an activity that in another bird would be quite painful right our next category is ingenuity this describes you know smart things they're doing could be pack tactics tool use that sort of thing Mm -hmm. i'm giving a seven out of ten so to our earlier point i want to give them you know points for storing food in holes true right it does help to do that uh, so they do this in the fall, then continue feeding on the acorns the rest of the year. That's particularly important in the winter when their other food sources aren't as available. True. Acorns aren't going to like go bad, you know, right. like you can you can put them away from they're pantry friendly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they'll also store insects in cracks and crevices. Mm, there yeah. you go. <laughs> That's my little pocket ant. Yeah. Keep that for so later. They're kind of like the squirrels of the birds, I suppose. Oh, I like that. <laughs> My next point is they team together to defend their granaries. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> so they're they're in small groups a lot of the time, and then those groups will defend the granary that they all use. Mm, they have an army to defend their fortress of right. acorns. <laughs> and my next point is sticking it to the human. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, they cause property damage a lot. Anarchist icon. Yeah. So it's not really understood, you know, how they choose buildings and such to do this to, uh, but they'll try to do this behavior a lot in like siding and the eaves of houses and stuff and putting <laughs> these holes in. Other woodpeckers are known to do this too. Yeah, we've had it happen <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, we lived in a two-story house, and one day uh, we heard this kind of like very persistent knocking sound right and could not figure out what it was and then it ended up being a pileated woodpecker yes (laughs) that was pecking on the side of our house (laughs) so woodpeckers can cause damage and some grief for people in that they do this with structures but also maybe trees that they don't want having holes bored into them true yeah Uh, these could be you know like uh decorational fruit trees that kind of thing oh yeah yeah if you have a tree that's meant to look pretty and then it is covered in acorn holes, mm-hmm. you get that that trypophobia effect. Yeah. That you see <laughs> that you get from like the Suriname toad. Like we talked about trypophobia with the Suriname toad. Yeah, I so I actually have that in my okay. miscellaneous info. Okay. I'll let I'll let you save that for that, but it, I could see why that would decrease the value of an ornamental tree. Well, I've also seen not necessarily for this species, but in general, woodpecker damage can negatively impact the health of a tree. So it, it kind of opens up pathways for, you know, disease and fungus and other insects, that kind of thing. Sure, yeah, it's not healthy for a tree. But if you're a bird and all you care about is making holes in wood, you know, like up until the last, you know, few centuries or so, it hasn't mattered what wood you make holes in, you know, like right. that's human use of, you know, wood for non-woodpecker purposes (laughs) is a pretty recent development. Yeah. (laughs) They just haven't caught up yet. Yeah. So 
the general solutions on trying to solve such an issue with woodpeckers, uh, they generally involve removing what's attracting them. So that could be, you know, for some species, the insects they're trying to get at or scaring them away. Ways I've seen people doing this is using fake, you know, predator bird statues that you'll see sometimes on houses. Yeah. Or hanging mirrors <laughs> in, within the line of sight of where you're having woodpecker problems. Oh. Because it scares them off. Oh, clever. Yeah. Or just kind of covering up what they're trying to poke at and repairing the damage. <laughs> yeah. I've also heard, I don't know if you had this in your notes, but I've also heard of people like playing the sounds of predators. Yes. Nearby. My small amount of anecdotal experience with that is those systems are very expensive and not super duper effective. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. You, you said they tried to do this where you work, right? Yeah. So my workplace had tried to use a sound system to keep the Canadian geese away because that the campus of my workplace has lots of, you know, grass and lots of water features and uh, like most of florida prime real estate for the yeah. canada goose so they were trying to keep them away one because you know they get very aggressive when they're laying nests and such they're so mean <laughs> they're so mean but also they make quite a mess on the concrete and such it's poop <laughs> make a poop mess yeah and then at this campus they they host you know lots of business people for that kind of thing so <laughs> so they have to <laughs> make sure they keep their fancy shiny right. shoes goose poop free yeah that didn't work out too well for them from what i said they eventually just hired a person with a trained border collie that's just trained to chase off the geese not hurt them not touch them just you know chase after them and bark and that turned out great actually <laughs> that is probably the most brilliant like genius thing i've ever heard just like hey we'll just get this guy to bring his dog <laughs> let the dog go have a fantastic time to keep the geese away it was always nice the dog too <laughs> <laughs> yeah because that's like the, really the perfect solution right because it's fun to look at yeah like it's nice to see it makes people happy and it keeps the geese away yeah it's a win-win for everybody except the geese <laughs> go somewhere else go home <laughs> uh so yeah sorry about that tangent we're all about tangents here <laughs> my next thing for ingenuity is shared parenting Love so it. multiple females in the group will use the same nest to lay their eggs and then the parents and helpers will take turns incubating the eggs hmm. and then that that behavior continues with feeding them once they're young that's so nice yeah there's more details that i didn't want to really get into oh a little bit of violence in there. Oh. But <laughs> it's the animal kingdom. What are you going to do? We can't hold them all to human standards of morality. Yeah. And then my last thing for ingenuity is the when they do their sap sucking, they're doing it communally. So they'll have a tree where they do that, and then they'll kind of come together to do the sap sucking. Aw. It's like a family table. <laughs> right. That's so. That's such a timely thing for Thanksgiving coming up. It's right. like the whole family, the whole community all gathering together to mm -hmm. share a meal together. Yeah. I'm so glad we were able to tie this into Thanksgiving. I'm the worst about remembering to do holiday-themed <laughs> episodes. It takes some planning. I know, and we didn't do it. So our last category is aesthetics. So this one is how cute or pretty or beautiful they look and appear. I'm going to 7 out of 10. That's pretty good. Yeah. So I said I put this in my miscellaneous info, but I actually put it in my aesthetics. <laughs> I can <laughs> the, see how. The trypophobia. <laughs> so it's not really them, right? It's the, right. it's what they produce, though. True. It's them adjacent. Right. So trypophobia is the fear of closely packed holes. So we talked about this with the Shurinam toad. Other examples of this, I think, are lotus pods oh yeah with their seeds lotus seed pods yeah have a bunch of clustered holes yeah 
I've even seen this extend to things like honeycomb. Sure. And like little pockets and cement, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, like sponges maybe even. Yeah. It's not formally recognized as an actual phobia. But I get it. It's unsettling. It is. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that I have a phobia, but I get the squeamish you know, right. I get how it can be, can make you kind of and uncomfortable. That, to look and at. that's why it's because, you know, that imagery usually leads to disgust. Whereas for something to be considered a phobia medically, it's supposed to cause uh, distress sure. <laughs> and affect quality of life. Right. Whereas I'm sure you're not going to be encountering things of this sort of texture often right. enough for it to impact your life that, right. that or, much. Or I guess, you know, just the, of those that do experience this, it's it's always more of a feeling of disgust than than fear. Yeah, I would say that. Yeah. It is nasty. <laughs> Aesthetically, the splash of red is nice. I it like is it. nice. Yeah. The the black and white and red, that is a tried and true like mm-hmm. color combo. It's good stuff. It works on every animal. Never have I seen a black, white, and red animal that I wasn't just like, mm, perfect. <laughs> But like you said, like we do have other woodpeckers here that follow a similar color scheme. Right. So we have the pileated woodpecker, which is the one that has, it's mostly black and white and it has the red crest on top um, and it's got the pointy crest. Yep. So, you know, it's our pileated woodpecker. Yep. So it's got that little point on top. Mm-hmm. And then I think our red bellied ones are black and white too. They and are. they have the, don't they have some brown on them too though? I'm not sure. It's They're the same smaller general. and harder to see. They are. It's a de- general idea though. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, in terms of miscellaneous info, their conservation status is of least concern, but their reliance on specific oak habitats may make it vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Mm. So so that part of the country and continent has problems with forest fires. Yeah. So that kind of thing is something to keep an eye out for. And earlier I mentioned ways to combat woodpecker damage. You'll notice I did not mention killing them. Oh, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> A big reason to avoid that is all woodpeckers are protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act in the USA. Oh, I didn't know that. Neither did I. Oh, that's interesting. There's a couple species that are actually protected by the Endangered Species Act, but mm-hmm. but not this one. Wow. So there is a whole process to where you can lower their population through a permit if you need to, but it, it involves showing proof of you've already tried the other things sure. and can show you know loss of things like property and income and stuff because of the damage. I mean, there's other ways, y'all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Be cool. (laughs) Be nice. Be nice to woodpeckers, please. (laughs) Even if they might not be super nice to your things. (laughs) So, yeah, that's the acorn woodpecker. That's a really interesting woodpecker. I'm going to have to keep an eye out for those uh, granary trees next summer uh, if we make our way out to the West Coast. Yeah. And I think in our neighborhood, you can see some of these standing dead trees where you see a single hole bored into it. Yeah. I'm betting that's nests of the of our local woodpeckers. They might be made by the woodpeckers, but they're probably like in use yeah. by other things. And actually, this is an interesting topic for our listeners to look up if they're interested. But this whole life cycle of a tree, starting when you know it starts to die, is dying and still standing and starting to fall down. It has all sorts of interesting ecosystem roles throughout yeah. that life cycle. Oh, yeah. There's no better place to like 
look for interesting little critters than a nice log. Yeah. Oh, you find a log on the ground, you know there's going to be something good in there. It's basically the whale fall of the forest. It is. Oh, that's such a, <laughs> that's such a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. You can find like millipedes. If mm-hmm. you're looking for a good millipede, you just crack open a log. I don't, I probably shouldn't say just go crack open a log because no. I don't think you're supposed <laughs> to be just doing that. Um, but, you know, if you can kind of get a good look from a safe distance mm-hmm. where you're not going to be disturbing things that might be living inside of the log. Salamanders like to live in logs or under logs. Mm -hmm. You know, nice frogs and toads. Fungus. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's always like the logs around here always get covered in like turkey tails and Mm -hmm. stuff. You get some beautiful fungus growth on a good log. Yeah. Logs are just... You see a good log. I feel like whenever we're like out hiking or on a nature walk or something, if we see a log on the ground, I feel like we need to like take a quick like diversion. Like, yeah, just a peek. Just (laughs) a quick little detour to go check out this cool log. (laughs) You never know. Could be some treasures in there. Yeah. Be careful though. Forest treasures. Yeah. Be careful. (laughs) There could also be like snakes and spiders and stuff that, you know, just be respectful of the forest. Love logs, love snags, love woodpeckers. Great animal. Thank you so much, Christian. Thank you. Let's uh, take a quick break to hear some promos from our neighbor shows on the Maximum Fun Network, and then let's get to my animal. Do you sometimes wonder whatever happened to the kids at your school who really loved Star Trek? You might remember a kid like me, the one who read the Star Trek novels and built starship models. I also took music classes to avoid taking gym classes that required showering after, but I don't see what that really has to do with- Or a kid like me! I introduced myself to kids at my summer camp one year as Wesley, but when the school year started and some of those kids were in my new class, I actually had to explain to my friends that I had tried to take on the identity of my favorite Star Trek character. The shame haunts me to this day. I'm sure some of those Star Trek fans from your childhood grew up to have interesting and productive lives, but we ended up being podcasters. On The Greatest Discovery, you'll hear what happens to two lifelong Star Trek fans who didn't grow up to be great people, but just grew up to be people who love jokes as much as they love Trek. Season 4 of Star Trek Discovery is here, so listen to our new episodes every week on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun. It's the Thanksgiving season, and I want to take this opportunity to thank you, the members of Maximum Fun. This Max Fun Drive, your generosity and your love of pins helped us raise over $90,000 to help bridge the digital divide. Families without internet access struggle to do things that the rest of us might take for granted, especially during COVID. Going to school, applying for jobs, Providing medical care. Your donations help the nonprofit Everyone On. They provide equipment, services, and training to get people online so they can access opportunity. You can find out more about the great work Everyone On does at everyoneon.org. Thanks for supporting Maximum Fun. Thanks for supporting Everyone On. And thanks for being awesome people who want to do good in the world. So enough about the woodpecker and logs. What animal do you bring us? Well, this week, I'm really excited. I've been so looking forward to telling you about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the West African lungfish. Oh. The scientific name is Protopterus anectens. 
This species was submitted by Jennifer Myers via email. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Truly, thank you. This yes. is, I don't know if I would have gotten around to, to talking about this animal on my own. So I'm so thrilled to get to do that. So thank you for giving me an excuse to talk about this cool fish. And I'm getting my information from National Geographic, the San Diego Zoo, the Oregon Zoo, which actually has these lungfish at it, and also a website called Fishbase, which is a really great repository of fish information. And then there are like a couple of little sources that I'll cite when they come up, because if I tell you what they're called now, it will be a spoiler. So let's talk about the lungfish. There are a few different types of lungfish. Some of them live in South America. Some of them live in Australia. Hmm. But um, this one, being the West African lungfish, lives in Africa. This is a long eel-shaped fish with fins that are long, skinny, and I would call them whip-like. So they're like pectoral fins are kind of shaped like a whip like they're long and pointy they don't fan out like other fish's fins do yeah this is a very noodly fish because they're kind of like eel shaped you know so they're all like long and streamlined and wiggly Mm -hmm. and then they have wiggly noodle fins so like interesting yeah the largest one ever found was a meter long which is 3.3 feet big it's big and four kilograms which is almost nine pounds Mm -hmm. so it's pretty big They're found in freshwater habitats. Okay. It's a freshwater fish. They live in rivers and floodplains throughout Western and Central Africa. Their taxonomic order is called Dipnoi. This is the order of the lungfish, which is a pretty broad classification when you're talking about taxonomy being an order. uh, There are only six known species in this order of lungfish. So taxonomy here is actually, y'all know. I'm not a taxonomy person. I don't usually get into taxonomy weeds. But here it's fascinating, not because of like naming categories and stuff like that, but because it tells a story. Like it tells like an evolutionary history story. Mm. And I love a good evolutionary history story. This is a good one. So mammals, as well as reptiles, amphibians, birds, those are all types of animals called tetrapods. So this means that they have four limbs. That's what that word means, four limbs. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's arms and legs. In other tetrapods, those may be all legs or maybe wings. But the gist of it is that we have four limbs rather than, say, six (laughs) or eight. So tetrapods had to develop this four-limb body plan from essentially a fish starter kit, (laughs) right? Because we started as fish way, way, way back when. So in this sort of transition from fins into full-blown arms and legs, early phases had fins that were basically like fins that had muscle and bone in them. Mm -hmm. So it looked kind of like a short, stubby leg with a fin at the end of it, sort of. Okay. And then the rays that formed the fins had bones that later became fingers and toes. Mm. Fins like this that have like muscle and bone in them, they're called lobe fins. And you can see them particularly well in a very large lobe finned fish that still lives today in the deep ocean. It's called coelacanth. 
Do you know about coelacanth? Yeah. So coelacanth is this fish that's usually called a living fossil. Right. Right. Because it has been so unchanged since we have fossil records of it going back hundreds of millions of years, and it still pretty much looks like that. Well, was it also because they didn't think it was still around? <laughs> right. Yeah. So they thought, you know, scientists thought it had been extinct for about 80 million years. Right. And then in the 1930s, just found one chilling in, I think it was in... South Africa, mm-hmm. they found, like, in the waters off of the coast of South Africa that they found a coelacanth just, like, vibing <laughs> out there. <laughs> but so the idea is that over hundreds of millions of years, the limbs of the lobe-finned fish grew longer, and eventually the rays became fingers and toes, which you can still kind of see if you look at our skeletons. Like, mm-hmm. the skeletons of these lobe-finned fish kind of start to look like legs with hands, Mm -hmm. you know? So all tetrapods evolved from these ancient lobe-finned fish, putting us technically in the fish family tree. Mm -hmm. So other lobe-finned fish are more closely related to us than they are to ray-finned fish, Hmm. which are the rest of the fish, basically. Sure. So coelacanth and lungfish, the lobe-finned fish, they're more closely related to us than they are to any other fish. Yeah. But basically, you know, tetrapods are lobe-finned fish that made their way out of the water. Sure. Permanently. Some of us made our way back into the water, right? Like (laughs) marine mammals, right? So like whales, they made their way out of the water and then decided that they had it right the first time and turned around and went back. But I want to be big. Yes. <laughs> I would like to be very large. But it's important to note that this, this does not mean that humans evolved from lungfish, right. right? Don't look at a lungfish and be like, oh, yeah, that's like my great, 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 great times a million grandparent. You know, like, no, it's they evolved from this common ancestor, but we didn't yeah. evolve from lungfish. Yeah, let's just get out in front of that. Why are there still lungfish? No, absolutely. Absolutely not. I'm shutting that down right now. Um, So most of the lobe-finned fish, including our direct ancestors, went extinct millions of years ago. So whatever common ancestor we evolved from is no longer here. It's just we're still here and the lungfish are still here, kind of like cousins. So lungfish, like the coelacanth, still strongly resemble fossils of their ancestors from about 400 million years ago. So lungfish today look almost exactly like lungfish did 400 million years ago, which for context, that was, this is in the Devonian period. This was before trees existed. Oh, okay. So this is also before tetrapods had like fully made their way out of the land yet. So if you were to step into a time machine and like travel back to the first lungfish, the land would mostly be ferns and moss And some bugs, like some bugs had made it onto the land by then. I think millipedes and some types of um, spiders had had made their way onto Mm -hmm. the land. Um, But dinosaurs were not even close yet. Like dinosaurs had not been invented yet. This was so long before dinosaurs was the lungfish was just there chilling. Um, And they're still here today, which I find really interesting. You could like go back that far and find something so familiar. I guess that makes sense. That they have remained so unchanged, because otherwise they would probably not be lungfish anymore, right? Yeah, but it is interesting to find something still here that so closely matches what it used to look like so far, so long ago. Because that just indicates some level of 
success, I guess, <laughs> you yeah. know, that like that they haven't needed to adapt so much, even though the environment has changed so drastically. Mm-hmm. See this in like horseshoe crabs was when like we talked about, right? That like horseshoe crabs have basically been the way they are <laughs> like <laughs> since the since the first draft, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so yeah, lungfish are just really interesting. They're a really cool example of like the transition from life in the water to life on land. And I just think that having that like context of knowing like the significance of their current like form makes me appreciate them more when i see them okay so the ratings for the west african lungfish for effectiveness i'm giving it a nine out of ten which is probably not surprising because considering that they've had this form for so long you know they must have gotten something right they've essentially just needed no revisions in 400 (laughs) million years so lungfish as their name would imply have lungs Okay. There you go. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) So when they're babies, they have external gills, um, but then they lose them as they grow up. So they actually are obligate air breathers, which obligate means they absolutely have to. So they have to come up to the surface to breathe air. They have to do this at least every 30 minutes. You've actually talked about this briefly with, I think it was the electric eel, a type of knife fish. Yep. That since it lived in very, very murky, muddy waters, there was not a lot of oxygen in the water, so they had to come up to the top to breathe. Mm -hmm. The shape similarity between this and the electric eel had Mm -hmm. me paranoid that one or both of its name lungfish was going to be false. Oh, I was like, is it not a fish? No, it's both. It has lungs and it's a fish. (laughs) How refreshing. I I know. We come from so many animals where like, it'll have like three different things in its name that have nothing to do with it. (laughs) Two lies and a truth. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the lungfish does have lungs. It's, very helpful for fish that lives in floodplains because this part of the world doesn't have the same types of seasons that we have, you know, over here where we live. It's not so much a hot and a cold season as it is a dry and a rainy season. Right. Which is the kind of norm for places close to the equator. Right. So during these dry seasons where it can go months at a time, you know, with no rain or anything like that, the floodplains and the riverbeds that they live in, they dry up. You know, and there's no standing water laying around for the lungfish to swim around in. Um, so they have an interesting way of surviving these dry seasons that I'm actually going to get into in ingenuity. Okay. But they can breathe out of water, basically. It's a very important thing for you to be able to do when there are long periods of time in your life in which you will not have access to water. Hmm good tool in your belt so you've talked about another fish that could come totally out of water you talked about the mud skipper right mud skipper is not related to the lungfish it just has some adaptations that get similar results yeah so you talked about how the mud skipper basically just holds on to water for later and then it just moves that water over its gills when it needs to later it's not necessarily breathing the air it's just keeping water for when it needs it. Right. When you talked about the mudskipper, you know, the mudskipper needs to go back into the water to get water to breathe. Mm -hmm. But for the lungfish, it's the opposite. It needs to come out of the water Mm -hmm. to get air to breathe. 
So another way that lungfish have really made a life for themselves on land is with their fins, which, as I mentioned, they're not, like, fanned out like other fish fins are. And they can move these long, flexible fins in alternating steps. Mm-hmm. This resembles walking, except they're kind of using it to, like, propel themselves. So it kind of ends up being more like a hop, <laughs> like a wiggly hop. It's perambulate, I think. The word. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not quite as smooth as, like, fully refined tetrapod walking. There is a really funny illustration that I saw on Wikipedia, um, and it is of them walking using these fins, but their fins are, like, fully extended, so it looks like they're, like, a dog (laughs) with, like, noodle legs. It's really funny. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking of that one Sonic drawing for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know the one you're talking about. It looks like it's, like, a a weird dog hoisted up on these little, like, strings. It's really funny. Okay, this was like totally unrelated to all that other stuff, but something that I found when I was doing my notes for this. This is thrilling. I love this. They have an ability that really ties them to amphibians. Oh? Particularly salamanders. And it is their ability to regenerate lost body parts. Oh, boy. Salamanders can famously do this quite well. If you chop chop off a salamander's tail, they can usually grow it back pretty well. So a lot of animals have the ability to regenerate lost body parts, but of note is that in the lung fish, the process by which the body repairs its limbs is the same as the process in salamanders. So it's just another example of that sort of transition between fish and terrestrial animal that you can see that like the lung fish has these features that a salamander also has. Hmm. It's, I think that's just such a cool little tie-in. Like, you can see these things they have in common that just makes them feel so much more familiar. Yeah. I think so, at least. You're going to love this. Okay. <laughs> You're going to think I'm kidding, but I'm not. <laughs> the process involves a signaling molecule called SHH. Capital S, lowercase h, lowercase h. Uh-huh. Do you want to take a stab at what SHH stands for? Wait, it's a... It's a signaling molecule used in all sorts of body processes, but I'm particularly talking about the regenerative process. Send (laughs) ham here. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great one. (laughs) But this, this signaling molecule is called Sonic Hedgehog. Uh, What? (laughs) No way. I'm not kidding. That's what it's really called. It's a, it's it's like mentioned in the study that I was reading. Oh no. It's called Sonic Hedgehog. <laughs> it is okay, so I I will go ahead and cite the article now. It is from a very recent study. It was called Salamander-like Tail Regeneration in the West African Lungfish by researchers at the University of Chicago and UFPA in Brazil, and this was in September of 2020. Wow. So this was just a year ago that this study came out. This is this is breaking news, folks. This is like hot off the press. Um, but yeah, this uh, this signaling molecule is called Sonic Hedgehog, which this protein is like involved in a lot of processes in the body. And so I've seen it pop up here and there during the times that I've been doing notes on like biological processes. Okay. And so I'd kind of seen it referenced here and there. And I'm really glad I got an excuse to actually bring this to your attention on the podcast. 
So any indication of why it's called that? Or? I mean, I I really don't know. I, just, <laughs> I You know, people forget that scientists are human beings. You know, and human beings have senses of humor. <laughs> this seems like the biology version of a computer programmer naming a variable, just some garbage name that has nothing <laughs> to do with anything, hoping, just thinking no one's going to see this. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> like hiding uh, profanity in the notes. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's a it's it's a signaling molecule called Sonic Hedgehog. It's on Wikipedia. It's a whole. It's funny because you have to go to like Sonic Hedgehog, and it says like disambiguation. Did you mean? Be like, Did you mean you meant Sonic <laughs> the Hedgehog, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> this again <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I like to imagine that it was just you know a scientist that was just trying to inject a little bit of humor a little ray of sunshine into their day I need answers <laughs> gonna call this listen if you're listening to this podcast and you were the one that called it Sonic Hedgehog please reach out I'd like to speak with you immediately <laughs> so yeah that's the thing on their regeneration I did give them a 9 out of 10 instead of a 10 out of 10 and that is because lungfish are a favorite meal for shoebills which we've talked about a long time really? ago yeah actually i mentioned that like when we talked about shoebills is that huh. they just love lungfish like just gobble them right up are they tasty i mean apparently for the shoebill they really love them and shoebills are really good at just snapping them right up um they're like specifically built for like propelling their face into the water to grab them and then there's just nothing the lungfish can do about it right like they can't fight back they don't have anything <laughs> on their body to do anything about it they're like large adult size is pretty much all they have going for them and that actually does help them against most predators that would be interested in them but the shoebill is kind of like bulky enough that it can even pick them up at a pretty good size yeah yeah so the shoebill is really the hardest counter to the lungfish um <laughs> there's this bbc video that I feel like catfished me because it's titled the unusual African lungfish battles a stork. Mm. So I was like, Oh, I'm going to watch this video to see how the lungfish is able to fight off this shoe bill. Maybe this is like going to be some, something I can include in my notes for some way it can defend itself. So I watched the video. It's just a shoe bill eating a lungfish with no issue <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> I was, I felt like I felt so cheated because I felt like I was promised a battle. There was no battle to be had. It was over instantly. <laughs> this goes back to the idea of a shoebill eating a lungfish in a lungfish documentary versus a shoebill documentary. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it felt like I was like, it felt like they were trying to portray the lungfish as this like brave hero. A lungfish wrote this documentary. <laughs> Shoebill really just picked it up and went on about its day. I was like, where's the battle? Huge disappointment. <laughs> Brave lungfish fights to the bloody end. <laughs> Basically, there was just nothing he could do about it. I was like, okay, all right. If this is the best you've got, I had to dock a point right. for no defenses None. whatsoever. Next category for the West African lungfish is ingenuity. I give it a seven out of 10. So this goes back to the thing I was talking about, how it survives the dry seasons. So during the dry seasons, this fish has to survive in a dried up riverbed for months at a time. So to get by until the next rainy season, the lungfish burrows down into the mud by chewing. So it just chomps down into the mud mm -hmm. and it spits the mud out through its gills. 
So once it's deep enough to cover its whole body, it wiggles. Yeah. It wiggles around to like hollow out a little cave, basically with this narrow opening that opens out into the air. So it has air to let in. So since it does this at kind of like towards the end of the wet season, there's enough water in there already that it has kind of this little water-filled chamber. Mm-hmm. So it sits in this water-filled chamber, just hangs out with its sort of nose poking out to reach the air. But then when the mud layer dries out, the water drains basically from its little cave. And what it does then is really interesting. It secretes a slimy mucus Mm. out of its body that then dries and it forms a cocoon around the lungfish. And it just waits in this booger cocoon (laughs) for months at a time until the rain comes back. So is it still in water at this point, or it's at just- this point the water's dried out? So it makes the snot cocoon in response to the water in its burrow being drained. Okay, and, and then at that point the metabolism in its body slows down to this glacial pace, mm-hmm. where it enters this period called estivation, hmm. which is just hibernation when it's hot. If it's cold, it's hibernation. If it's hot, it's estivation. Yeah. So they estivate where their body is basically just on minimal function only. They're not moving. They're not eating. They're not pooping. They can serve energy for months. They can hypothetically survive in this state for up to three and a half years. Wow. Yeah. With no break. Huh. Like literally just vibing for three years with no, not moving. (laughs) Well, they don't usually have to go that long, right? Usually it's only like six, seven, eight months before the rains come back. And it's usually not that big, not that big a deal. But while they're in this state of estivation, their body survives by digesting muscle tissue that's stored in their tail. Huh. Yeah. Um, and it just gets them by until they're able to come out of estivation and swim around and live a happy fish life. Wow. Yeah. Last thing for ingenuity, I promise this is going to be quick. I did want to include parenting in this because we don't often get to talk about fish parenting. Usually fish just kind of spawn their babies out and wish them the best and don't have a lot of involvement in the life of the young. But so female lungfish lay their eggs in their nest. And then once the eggs hatch, male lungfish protect their young. Mm. They guard their babies for up to two months. Which is quite a while, considering most fish don't do anything yeah. with their babies, you know? Lungfish are good dads. Just wanted to include a little <laughs> bit of credit for lungfish dads, that they're doing great. That's a little bit like the catfish. Yeah. I did actually, like, while I was doing my notes, I felt like I was like, I'm getting real catfish, yeah. like, vibes from the lungfish. Which makes sense, because it's another kind of, like, muddy, like, freshwater right. fish. Probably some convergent evolution going on there. Yeah. Final category, aesthetics. I'm going to wrap this one up quick. Six out of ten. It's, I mean, there's nothing. If you were to look at this fish without knowing any of the context I give you earlier, it doesn't look like an exciting fish. You know? Yeah. It just, it looks pretty bland. It's kind of a drab, like, gray-brown color, and it has these black spots on it. That can be kind of cool. They can look a little bit, like, leopard-spotty, kind of, in some ways. They have a thick, broad snout with tiny, tiny little eyes, which I think is, like, kind of cute a little Mm -hmm, bit. mm -hmm. You know I like a chunky fish. Like, you know I'm (laughs) into that. I like a chunky fish. The noodle arms are really funny. Like, it's more funny than anything, really. Um, The tail is shaped like a leaf or maybe kind of like a feather almost, which I think is nice. 
yeah, I like a chunky fish. This is six out of ten, but you know, nothing wild. Sure. I would have given them higher if they maybe had some pretty colors or sure. something like yeah. that. I would love to see a splash of red on this guy. <laughs> okay, so to wrap things up for the lungfish, miscellaneous information, their conservation status is least concern. Uh, they have a very wide range. So mm-hmm. they're found in huge swaths of a massive continent. So they don't necessarily have a habitat shortage and they have no major threats to its population that have been identified other than maybe the shoebill. <laughs> <laughs> but the shoebill is in a more precarious conservation situation than they are. So they are more populous than the shoebill. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to say for the lungfish, during my research, uh, while I was uh, toiling in the internet mines, I found a diamond. I found a gem on the internet. I struck gold. (laughs) This is a track on Spotify. Oh, boy. The track is titled Devonian. Uh-huh. which is the name of the period of time when there was this big boom in fish evolution. The Devonian period gave us such classic hits as lobe-finned fish, as well as sharks and ray-finned fish. Mm-hmm. So just big period of time associated with fish evolution. And this is a track on Spotify called Devonian, which is the only track released by artist Lil Lungfish. Oh. And it is a rap about the Devonian period and tetrapod evolution. Hmm. And it is, in fact, like about the Devonian period. Okay. And that's what I found. Is it, does it slap? I mean, that's up to the listener to decide. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk about um, subjective is, qualities. That's true. Uh, <laughs> we've never done that on the show. Ever. We've never arbitrarily given opinions to things. <laughs> Yeah, go check it out. It's called Devonian. It's by Lil Lungfish. And I will say, this track on YouTube has 21 plays. Okay. So this, when I say this is a deep cut on the internet. All right. Get in now. Like, invest (laughs) on the ground, you know? Like, get get in before it's viral. All right. Yeah. So that's the, that's the Lungfish. (laughs) Thanks. You're welcome. (laughs) If you heard me in the kitchen while I was doing my notes, vibing to like a, an inexplicable rap song that's what that was fantastic yeah well thank you so much to everybody who has joined us today and thank you to everybody who has been leaving kind reviews for us on your podcatcher that means a lot to us thank mm-hmm. you so much for doing that thank you um you can connect with us on facebook twitter or instagram or discord or tiktok uh search the title of the show on your favorite social media platform and you shall find us if you have an animal species that you'd like to hear you can submit those to us at my email address which is ellen at just the zoo of us.com I would like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network with their other wonderful shows. You can check those out. And also, if you'd like to support us financially, that would be lovely. You can do so at MaximumFun.org slash join. Sign up for a membership. It supports us. It supports your other favorite shows on the Max Fun Network. We would love that if you could do that. For sure. That would be so nice. No pressure. Don't do it if you can't. Just saying it would be nice. (laughs) And finally, thank you to Louis Zong for our theme music, which you're about to hear right now. It's good. It is. (laughs) We will talk to y'all soon. Bye, y'all. Bye.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.